This is The Guardian. Hey, Jane Lee here. On the 6th of January, 2020, as the US election campaign reached its climax, something unprecedented happened in the nation's capital. An angry mob of Donald Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building, threatening the democratically elected representatives inside, vandalising property and assaulting police. Now, two and a half years on, new details of what Trump knew at the time are emerging. But it's hard to say whether it will lead to a prosecution against the former president. In this episode from our global news podcast, Today in Focus, host Michael Safi takes a look at the congressional hearings charged with unravelling the story of the Capitol insurrection. For the past few weeks, millions of Americans have been tuning in to a primetime TV show. It has violence, power struggles, and plot twists. But it isn't a Netflix drama. It's a series of congressional hearings into the riot on January 6th last year when hundreds of people broke into Washington's Capitol building as Joe Biden's presidential victory was being certified and sent staffers and politicians running for their lives. with four members. The doors barricade. There's people flooded the hallways outside. We have no way out. It's time to evacuate so we can secure the members on the other side. Copy. The hearings have been designed with help from a TV producer, and it shows. Each episode tells one part of a larger story, Today, we will begin examining President Trump's effort to overturn the election by exerting pressure on state officials and state legislatures. The politicians leading the hearings act like narrators, talking through bits of previously unseen audio and video. One of our witnesses today, Gabriel Sterling, explicitly warned President Trump about potential violence on December 1st, 2020. You will see excerpts from that video repeatedly today. This week, they even had a surprise witness. The January 6th committee has abruptly scheduled its next hearing for this afternoon. The panel says it will present recently obtained evidence. Sources say former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson is expected to testify, possibly offering details about interactions between former President Trump and Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Giving evidence that links Trump closer to the violence that day than anything before. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. To fight a president who mastered television, politicians are building a case made for TV. But will it be enough to see him prosecuted? From The Guardian... I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the case against Donald Trump and why convicting him might be harder than it seems. Lawrence Douglas, you're a professor of law at Amherst College in Massachusetts and you write on American politics for The Guardian. Take me through what it was like around 1pm on Tuesday when you sat down and you tuned in to this surprise session of the January 6th congressional hearings. It was a pretty astonishing bit of television. We were listening to this Cassidy Hutchinson, who I have to say is 
She's a pretty terrific witness. She's a young woman. She's only 26 years old. Uh, let's bear in mind that she was an aide to Mark Meadows, and Meadows, of course, was uh, Trump's uh, chief of staff. And let's also bear in mind that she's a Republican, and most of the testimony that's being presented before the House committee is from Republicans. And uh, it was just absolutely riveting, galvanizing moment. I just found myself sitting at the edge of my couch watching what she had to say. The he in that text that I was referring to was the president. And so what was it that most struck you of the many explosive things that she had to say? One of the things that was most revealing was the degree to which people within the White House were well aware of the threat of violence before January 6th. So that's an important thing. So it's not as if this is something that then just happened and the White House was basically caught off guard, failed to kind of mount an adequate response in the moment. No, they they had the Secret Service and intelligence people telling them well advanced that there was a threat of violence before January 6th and basically did absolutely nothing. I remember leaning against the doorway and saying, I had an interesting conversation with Rudy, Mark. Sounds like we're going to go to the Capitol. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. And then, of course, there's just the uh, information that we received about Trump himself, just to kind of get the full sense of how deeply unhinged he was and how he really was willing to hold American democracy hostage to his desire to stay in power. It was really just astonishing. One of the things that she said, so this is even before January 6th, this is as early as January 3rd, where Trump started talking about going up to the Capitol on January 6th, basically to contest the certification of Biden's victory. And Pat Cipollone, this is a White House attorney, he basically turns to Cassidy Hutchinson and says, We need to make sure that this doesn't happen. This would be... A legally a, a terrible idea for us. We're, we have serious legal concerns if we go up to the Capitol that day. So this is Pat Cipollone, again, the White House lawyer, worrying about the legal exposure. And this is, again, three days before January 6th. And then on January 6th itself, we have these kind of incredible details, such as when Trump gives his uh, speech on the ellipse. Well, of course, uh, characteristically, he's concerned that there are not enough people there. And the people he wants admitted to hear his speech are people who are armed. That is, uh, we know from Secret Service and other police that outside the ellipse in various places, there were people not just with concealed weapons, but with automatic rifles, with AR-15s. And these people obviously are not uh, permitted into an area where a president is giving a speech. There are all sorts of metal detectors uh, that would prevent them from entering. And Trump wanted to have those metal detectors removed. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. And then, of course, we have this kind of incredible testimony uh, about uh, Trump's desire to go to Congress. Now, uh, we know that during the speech, he said, let's go to, you know, let's let's march up to the Capitol now. And then some of the um, efforts over the last more than year and a half 
to try to exculpate Trump, to suggest that, look, he's really not guilty of anything, was to say, look, he just said that. He never actually marched with these people. He never went up to the Capitol. But we now know he really did want to go up there. That wasn't just a bunch of rhetoric on his part. And that when he climbed into the presidential limousine after giving his uh, speech, he expected to go up to the Capitol. And it, we also received this lovely little detail that the presidential limousine is called the Beast. And while in the Beast, he behaved in pretty beastly fashion, we're told. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel and Mr. When Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. Now, it should be said that I guess there are members of the Secret Service who are somewhat disputing that account, uh, but no one is disputing the fact that he was furious and desperately wanted to go uh, up to the Capitol and was basically the Secret Service concerned about his own possible safety that came between him and basically leading the insurrection. I mean, that is remarkable that not only did he know that these protesters were armed, but he actually wanted to go with them to the Capitol, suspecting you might think that they weren't just there to hold a kind of peaceful protest. That's exactly right. I mean, basically, he wanted to be at the head of an insurrection directed against the coordinate branch of government for the purposes of frustrating a completely fair democratic election. I mean, basically what we're talking about is uh, he was trying to stage a putsch and he wanted to be at the vanguard of it. And another thing that came out in Hutchinson's testimony, she brought us back to a few weeks earlier. I believe this is a December 20th. And this is when Attorney General Bill Barr basically releases an announcement saying that the Department of Justice has no information of systematic fraud that would have cast doubt on the outcome of the election, that it was a fair democratic election. And how does Trump respond to this? Well, he responds by basically uh, throwing a tantrum. The valet was inside the dining room changing the tablecloth off of the dining room table. He motioned for me to come in and then pointed towards the front of the room near the fireplace mantle and the TV, where I first noticed there was ketchup dripping down the wall. We have this kind of really a remarkable uh, description of Cassidy Hutchinson um, walking in and seeing the, the ketchup dripping down the wall. And she very kind of nicely offers to try to, you know, help these aides um, and workers uh, clean up the ketchup that's dripping off the wall from this unhinged president hurling his cutlery against a fireplace in frustration of the fact that his own attorney general won't back up his lies. So, Lawrence, that's just one witness from one day of these hearings, but they've been going for weeks now. What kinds of new things have we been learning about both January 6th and the ways in which Donald Trump may have tried to steal the 2020 election? 
some of the things that have been most interesting is the way in which Donald Trump and his minions really tried to create a fake election scheme. They assembled groups of individuals in key battleground states and got them to call themselves electors, created phony certificates associated with these fake electors, and then transmitted these certificates to Washington and to the Congress to be counted during the joint session of Congress on January 6th. So it wasn't simply that on January 6th, they were going to pressure Mike Pence into failing to recognize Biden's electoral victory. It was that they had from very early on created this pretty elaborate scheme to impanel fake electors in seven different swing states. And it was part of an elaborate scheme to eliminate the uh, peaceful succession of power in the United States. That has been a kind of a remarkable and, and deeply revealing and disturbing story that this committee has told. Can you explain to me how this fake elector scheme actually worked? Like, what was the plan? Remember, the way a president is elected in the United States is we have this kind of unusual system. Whoever wins the popular vote in a state basically receives the electoral votes of that state. And the electors are actually real human beings. And if Joe Biden wins the state of Wisconsin, as he did, it means that electors in his name will cast their votes, giving Biden the Electoral College votes of Wisconsin. Okay, I'm getting flashbacks to trying to get my my head around the 2020 presidential election. Fine, I'm with you. So how did Trump, and as you called them, his minions, try to mess with this system? Now, what Trump tried to do with the support of these people was they basically tried to create this list of phantom rival electors so that Trump could say, wait a second, Wisconsin didn't submit one slate of electors to Congress to be counted on January 6th, just one slate for Biden. There are two separate slates, one for me and one for Biden. And then it becomes the responsibility of either the vice president or Congress itself to figure out for themselves which slate of electors should be recognized. It was part of an effort to place this pressure on Pence. And that presents us with a constitutional dilemma. That's what the campaign was aiming for. Okay, so to put it another way, their plan was just to sow confusion, mess with the system, create an alternate reality and hope that Pence, who had the power to decide which of these realities was accurate, would buckle and go along with Trump's scheme. We know about the pressure they put on Mike Pence, but what about the pressure they put on other people to try to put this plan into action? From very early on, they recognised that he had lost And so what they now did is they basically went into overdrive for the purposes of simply trying to deny Biden the victory that they recognized that he had rightfully received. And, you know, very early on, you have people suggesting to John Eastman, a lawyer who ends up playing a very disturbing role in all this, and this lawyer who was working on behalf of Trump, calling the Speaker of the House in Arizona, Rusty Bowers, a Republican who voted for Trump, and he tries to pressure Bowers into recognizing an alternative slate of electors. You're asking me to do something that's never been done in history, the history of the United States. And I'm going to put my state through that without sufficient proof. And that's going to be good enough with me that I would 
I would put us through that, my state, that I swore to uphold both in Constitution and in law? No, sir. So Mike Pence, who throughout the four years of Donald Trump's presidency, basically played the good soldier. At some point, he actually digs in his heels and says, you know, I'm not going to be party to this effort to overturn the results of a properly conducted election. Mike Pence, I hope you're going to stand up for the good of our Constitution and for the good of our country. And if you're not, I'm going to be very disappointed in you. I will tell you right now. Mike Pence said no. He resisted the pressure. He knew it was illegal. He knew it was wrong. We're fortunate for Mr. Pence's courage on January 6th. We also know that Ron Johnson, a senator from Wisconsin, was interested in handing Pence an envelope with the names of uh, false electors. Pence's office, again, just refused to play along with this unconstitutional effort to overturn the results of an election. The vice president's aide unambiguously instructed them not to deliver the fake votes to the vice president. Lawrence, this all suggests that there were many Republicans who knew that notwithstanding what he was saying in public, Trump had not won the election. And I wonder, were there people telling Trump that, making it clear to him that there was no evidence the election was a fraud, that in fact he had lost to Joe Biden? We first got this very powerful testimony from the former Attorney General Barr. And we have Barr saying directly to the president, I see no evidence of fraud whatsoever. And Barr, up until then, was, again, considered in many ways one of the most powerful and aggressive supporters of Trump. And now we have Barr reaching a point in which he says, I can't go any further with this. I told him that the stuff that his people were shoveling out to the public were bull- was bullshit. I mean, that the claims of fraud were bullshit. And then we have Ivanka Trump coming along and saying, I trust Bill Barr's estimation about this. I trust that when Bill Barr says that there's no election fraud, there's no election fraud. It affected my perspective. Um, I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, So I accepted what he was saying. One of the things that we've also learned is that some of the members of Congress who were most aggressive in supporting the effort to keep Trump unconstitutionally, illegally, and arguably criminally in power, actually approached the White House for the purposes of seeing whether they could get pardons. The general tone was, we may get prosecuted because we were defensive of the president's positions on these things. The pardon that he was discussing, requesting, was as broad as you could describe. So the people around Trump wanted pardons for what they were doing at the time. I mean, that suggests they knew that there was at least a chance that it wasn't legal. To the extent that they're asking pardons for the activity that they're engaging in suggests that they know or they have reason to suspect that they are engaging in activity that can expose them to criminal charges. Do you think he genuinely believed he had been robbed of a victory in the weeks leading up to January 6 and on the day itself? And why is that question so important? The question of what exactly Trump believed at the time? The two set of charges that potentially could be brought against them, again, not by the committee, it would have to come from the Department of Justice itself. The two possible crimes that he could be charged with 
are, uh, and they're both federal crimes. One is the corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. And the second is a conspiracy to defraud the United States. And in both of those things, it would be to his advantage to try to argue, wait a second, you can't say I was engaged in any corrupt obstruction because I was acting in sincere belief. And so again, his state of mind does become quite relevant if at some point the Department of Justice chooses to bring criminal charges against him. Interesting. He could argue, yeah, I did all this stuff, but I, I believed it was legitimate. And that, that's a potential defense. He could try to kind of make himself out into the great patriot of saying like, well, I thought I was acting in defense of American democracy against the fraudulent election, which, of course, is the lie that he's been telling. And it seems very clear from the committee investigation that he was well aware of his defeat. It really is so damning. And to have it broadcast during prime time must be really aggravating to the person at the centre of it, Donald Trump. How has he responded to all of this? Without the kind of social media platforms that he had in the past, he's somewhat limited. Uh, He has given speeches in which he has predictably attacked the committee as just a witch hunt. I mean, witch hunt is one of his favorite epithets for any entity that tries to reveal his shenanigans and his illegal, arguably criminal behavior. This is a theatrical production of partisan political fiction that's getting These terrible, terrible ratings, and they're going crazy. It's a one-sided witch hunt. But again, remember, it's not just Trump that's responding. I mean, this is one of the things that unfortunately undercuts the power of the committee's presentations is that we do have this siloed and fractured media universe. So we have people like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson on Fox engaged in counter-programming. So... FBI operatives were organizing the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, according to government documents. Huh? So it turns out that this white supremacist insurrection was, again, by the government's own admission in these documents, organized at least in part by government agents. Really kind of spreading uh, conspiracy theories. So, for example, that there was certain elements of a false flag operation going on, that it really wasn't Trump supporters who were responsible for this, but Antifa supporters. Hmm. And Lawrence, this committee isn't done yet with its public hearings. What do you think they're going to be trying to cover over the next few weeks? I suppose they've been focusing on, you know, two separate things. One is the disruption of the congressional certification. Another thing we've been hearing about was the fake electors. And we know that the president was involved in both schemes. So I think what they'll probably be doing is trying to kind of keep both of those storylines moving forward. They dropped something at the very end of Tuesday's hearing. They mentioned that they're actually people trying to intimidate the witnesses. That itself is a criminal act to try to intimidate witnesses before the the committee itself. So I suppose we're probably going to hear a little bit more about that. We'll probably also try to hear more about um, what happened after January 6th, about the ways in which Trump continued to peddle the lie of the false election in the weeks after uh, January 6th. And I think we'll probably hear more about the GOP lawmakers who were seeking a pardon. Coming up, 
the January 6 hearings have found damning evidence of possible criminal conduct by Donald Trump. But getting a jury to convict him could be an even greater challenge. Lawrence, you said that one of the points of this committee was not just to show what's happened in the past, but what's still happening today and what could happen in the future. So what is it about this evidence that feels so urgent to the moment now and for the years ahead? We know how powerfully other members of the Republican Party have bought into the big lie. I mean, it's almost turned as a, into a litmus test of one's fidelity to Republican politics. Among other things, the convention voted to reject the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, called Joe Biden an illegitimate president. These people might be in positions of power when it comes to counting the popular vote and awarding electoral college votes in 2024. And that is a real and present danger to the American democracy. And have these revelations, these shocking things we've been hearing over the past few weeks, changed any of their views? Not really. It does seem to be the case that um, that Trump's power within the Republican Party remains very, very great, which is not to say that, that we don't see certain weaknesses appearing. We know, for example, that the Secretary of State of Georgia, this Brad Raffensperger, who very aggressively refused to capitulate to Trump's aggressive efforts to have Raffensperger find 11,000 more votes. There's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. You should want to have an accurate election. And you're a Republican. We believe that we do have an accurate election. No, I know you don't. No, no, you don't. You don't have, you don't have, not even close. Trump has basically tried to destroy Raffensperger's political career. And Raffensperger won handedly in the GOP nomination battle in Georgia recently. But that said, Trump remains by far the most powerful figure within the Republican Party. Lawrence, the Justice Department is in the hands of the Democrats. Why don't they just bring charges against Donald Trump? Well, I think... If the Department of Justice brings charges against Trump, they really, really want to make sure that the perception is that this is a proper exercise in the administration of justice, that they have evidence that very clearly indicates that the president engaged in criminal actions, because otherwise the thing just can end up rebounding to Trump's favor. He can make himself into a martyr of basically a political crusade against him. And we know again that he will have his ablers, people like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity in Fox News who have a huge audience. The other thing we need to bear in mind is as a prosecutor, the quantum of evidence that's needed for the purpose of indictment is not necessarily the same quantum of evidence that's needed to convict. I mean, in order to convict, you need to get basically a jury to conclude that guilt has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. You need a unanimous jury. The political reality is that all you need is one person not to vote to convict, and you have an acquittal. And an acquittal could, again, rebound to the favor of Donald Trump. 
And it could also make him look like almost this invincible character. I mean, here he's a guy, the only person in American history to survive two impeachment trials in the Senate. And then the idea that he um, would then survive a criminal trial, again, that could just rebound to his political favor. And that is something I think the Department of Justice is keenly aware of and deeply worried by. That's really interesting. In a highly polarized country, the chance of just one person saying, I don't buy this, this is all a conspiracy, Trump's right, is probably a a lot higher than, than we're comfortable with. Exactly. That's exactly right. All the defense needs is one person. All it needs is one person. And if you're talking about 12 individuals and you look at the demographic realities of the United States, it's more than likely that uh, you're going to end up with some Trump supporter, arguably on that jury. And that's all the defense needs for the purposes of defeating a prosecution. The kind of uncomfortable conclusion this leads me to is that in some ways, Because of his popularity, because of the passion with which some people, this small core of people, support Donald Trump, is he untouchable? Like, is he legally outside the reach of the law? It's an incredibly important question because it does look in a certain way as if Trump is above the law. We don't know if he's going to run again in 2024. We have reason to believe that he will. And I think what would be critical there is for him to be defeated and to be defeated soundly. And uh, that, I think, would be the most powerful way to discredit him and to discredit his uh, politics of constitutional brinkmanship. Mm. Uh, But again, there's no guarantee that he would even lose in 2024. So I can see on the one hand all the risks that come with trying to prosecute Trump for this, but then there is the other side of this, which is that he isn't prosecuted. And it feels like that's a terrible choice too, because what's the lesson he takes away from that, that he can do pretty much whatever he wants and there are no consequences? It really is one of these kind of classic damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situations. But if they do think that they have enough evidence to indict, and refuse to do so simply because of the kind of considerations that we just laid out, then that becomes, and again, a a real indictment of, you know, not the Department of Justice, but the rule of law in the United States. It basically is saying that the rule of law in the United States applies to basically 330 million people except one. And that one person is the most powerful person in the Republican Party, potentially the future commander-in-chief of the United States. Lawrence Douglas, thank you very much. It has been my pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for having me. That was Lawrence Douglas, a professor of law at Amherst College in Massachusetts, speaking with Today in Focus host Michael Safi. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams, sound design by Rudy Zagadlo, additional production by Camilla Hannon. The executive producers of Today in Focus are Elizabeth Casson and Phil Maynard. I'm Jane Lee, and I'll be back with a new episode of Full Story tomorrow. Catch you then.